with you then. Please turn to the ninth chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. If you were to describe the times in which we live in one word, what word would you use? Over these past weeks, I've been thinking about the state of our nation and words like confusion and chaos and derangement have come into my mind. But there's one word that continues to surface in my thinking as I think about and pray about the times in which we live. And it's the word darkness. Everywhere you turn, there is darkness. There is intellectual darkness. There are people who actually think, who actually think you can change your gender. It's Alice in Wonderland time. You could hardly believe it that intelligent men and women think that you can do something like that. There is intellectual darkness. There's moral darkness. Laws are passed where evil is called good and good is called evil. And there is spiritual darkness. Thick darkness covers the land. Children growing up with no knowledge of the Bible. No knowledge of the God of the Bible. No knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Savior given by God for the life of the world. No knowledge that they have an undying soul that one day will either dwell forever with eternal blessedness in the nearer presence of God or be damned to eternity in what the Bible calls the fire that will never die. Darkness covers the face of our nation. You see, we're little different from the times in which Isaiah lived in the latter years of the 8th century before Christ. We dress differently. We can travel more quickly. We, we can cure more people, but people haven't changed. The French have a, a lovely phrase, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Things change, but they don't really change. When you scratch beneath the surface, we're just like the people in Isaiah's day. The Assyrian superpower was casting its dark, dark shadow over the whole Near East. And little tiny Judah uh, is wondering what's going to become of it. The northern, ten northern tribes of Israel are going to be swallowed up by Assyria in the year 722 BC. Judah's going to get a little respite for 140 years or so, and then round about the year 590, 586, the next superpower, Babylon, which has swallowed up Assyria, is going to come and swallow up the southern kingdom of Judah, carry them off into exile. Times are bleak, times are dark. We are told that the people who walked in darkness, verse 2, 
That was the condition of the people. They were walking in darkness. In verse 1 we're told it was thick darkness. Dark darkness. Now what you need to remember as you read the Bible is that Everything in the Bible from the third chapter of Genesis is an escalating drama. Adam has brought the cosmos down into sin and rebellion against God. But God himself steps in, you'll remember, Genesis 3.15 and preaches the first gospel sermon. The first gospel sermon comes from the lips of Yahweh. I will put enmity between you, Satan, in the guise of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. You will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. God promised his people a serpent crusher, a deliverer, a rescuer. And you could imagine as the years passed, as the centuries passed, as the millennia passed, people would be wondering and waiting. When is God going to act? When will the serpent crusher come? When, when, when? It's hard to wait, isn't it? It's hard to wait sometimes for a day, for a week. Here are people who've been waiting for hundreds, thousands of years for God to fulfill his promise. And now, in this time of thick darkness, he says... The people who walked in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light. Now try and imagine, if you can, what it must have been like for these people to hear these words for the first time. A great light. A great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Hope has come. Light being symbolic of of hope and help. And then in verses uh, 3 through 5, the Lord tells them that he's going to crush their enemies. He's going to overwhelm those who stand against them. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. You've broken as in the day of Midian. God is saying to his people, look back to the days of Gideon. The days of the judges. Probably about 500 years before this time. Look what I did through Gideon in smashing your enemies. I'm going to do it again. And the people, at least the remnant of faith within the nation would be thinking, at last, at last, at last, rescue is coming, deliverance is at hand. For, verse 6, and these little prepositional connectives, for, um, are so significant in the Bible, in the unfolding story of redemption. For, this is how God is going to bring 
deliverance and rescue. This is how God is going to smash their oppressors. This is how God is going to bring light into their darkness. For, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. God is always acting so unexpectedly. How is he going to crush the serpent, Satan? How is he going to overwhelm and defeat the enemies of the people of God? How is he going to bring light to penetrate and disperse and dispel the thick darkness? A child is going to be given. A son is going to be born. Now for those who knew their Bibles, this would have begun to ring bells. Because back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God said that it would be from the seed of the woman that he would bring forth the serpent crusher. The one who would crush the head of Satan. Who would defeat the enemy of the people of God. From a woman. And then a little earlier in chapter 7 in Isaiah. God said to this wicked king Ahaz. Who, who was, he was pious with his words. But he had a godless heart. Always look beyond people's words. However evangelical, reformed, and orthodox they are, look at their lives. And God says to Ahaz, ask of me and I'll give you a sign. Even if it's as high as heaven and as deep as Sheol, you can ask me for a sign to show my commitment to my church, my people, because that's what... Israel was the visible church of God. Ask me for a sign. Ahaz said, oh, no, 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 that, oh, no, I don't want to put God to the test. Um, He's trying to be pious. And God says, I'm going to give you a sign. The virgin will conceive. Give birth to a son. And they'll call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. I'm going to give my people a sign. He doesn't say when he's going to give it. But he says, I'm going to give you a sign. The virgin will conceive. Now, the ancients didn't know as much as we know. But they knew basic biology. Virgins don't conceive. And God says, I'm going to do an extraordinary thing. An unexpected thing. A thing so remarkable that you would hardly believe it except I told you about it. The virgin will conceive. And now, as it were, God is fleshing out the identity of this Emmanuel, God with us. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government, that is the authority, the rule, the dominion, 
will be on his shoulder and his name shall be called. And he tells us four things, four little couplets. Not five as in Handel's Messiah's name shall be wonderful, counsel. Four names. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Let me just briefly reflect on these with you. He will be, says the Lord, this child who was to be born, the son who was to be given, he will be a wonderful counselor. Or better, he will be a wonder of a counselor. Or even better, I think, in the Hebrew, he will be a supernatural counselor. You see what God is saying? My people are enshrouded in darkness. They don't know their right hand from their left. They need help. They need guidance. They need direction. I'm going to send them a wonder of a counselor. I'm going to send them one who will be able to guide them through the darkness of this life to the light and glory of the life which is to come. I'm going to send them a wonder of a counsellor. And that's what we see, isn't it, in the teaching ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks and people say, He speaks like no one we've ever heard before. He speaks with more insight and wisdom than the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Jesus comes and he opens up to people the way of the Lord. Because that was their great need. They needed someone to direct them through the darkness that was covering the land. They needed someone who could, by his instruction, say, This is the way, walk ye in it. Or even better, who could say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is why Jesus is a wonder of a counselor. Because in him is the fullness of the wisdom of God. In Jesus Christ, we see life as it really is. We see ourselves as we really are. And we see God as who he truly is. This child to be born, the son who's going to be given, who will have all authority and dominion on his shoulders, is going to be a wonder of a counsellor. And that's what we all need in these dark times. Someone to take us by the hand and say, let me lead you. Let me guide you. Indeed, follow me. Follow me me. Jesus Christ 
comes to be to us the wisdom from God. That's why he's called at the beginning of John's gospel the word. In the beginning was the word. And that word, the logos, has a number of nuanced meanings in Greek. It, it, it can mean the reason, um, rationality, wisdom. That's why all the time Jesus is saying to people, look at me, follow me. He's always talking about himself. You know, when you meet people who talk about themselves, you just want to get rid of them, don't you? You just can't wait to be away from them. But not Jesus. He's always talking about himself. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He comes to be a wonder of a counsellor. Secondly, we're told he is mighty God. Now, that's astounding. A child to be born, a son to be given, and he has the name El Gibor, mighty God, heroic God, conquering God. It's picking up what was told um, Ahaz by the Lord in chapter 7. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is where the Bible just transcends all our capacities to think. How can that which is born be mighty God? We don't know. There is a profundity, an unfathomableness about the incarnation of the eternal word made flesh. How he became flesh was by the power of the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb. But how that came to be, we cannot fathom. How can the eternal become temporal? How can the God who is from everlasting to everlasting join frail flesh to himself? Calvin, in his commentary on John 1.14, if I remember rightly, and the word became flesh, says, Christ took to himself our flesh addicted to so many wretchednesses. He took weak, frail humanity. He knew what it was to suffer, to weep, to experience desertion, disappointment and desolation. And he did so as El Gabor Mighty God. There is a wonder, an unfathomable wonder at the very heart of the Christian faith. And it's this. That the everlasting God understands from the experience of God the Son what it's like to be you and what it's like to be me. He knows who you are not simply by observation but by experience. 
One of the hymns I love to sing, not just at Christmas, has the words, Low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. I can never sing that without, without being deeply moved and without, without stopping every time and thinking, what on earth? Is that? He's in a manger. Low within a manger lies the one who built the starry skies and who, even while he's in the manger, is upholding the cosmos by the word of his power. The Bible doesn't stop to try and explain the inexplicable, it just says that's how it is. If you want to think more about that, then read about it in John Calvin's Institutes. There's a wonderful, well, let me not get distracted, called the Extra Calvinisticum. As he sucks in his mother's milk, he's sustaining the cosmos. You see, we're Christians not because we've got answers for everything. We're Christians because the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He is mighty God. And then thirdly, he is everlasting Father. Now don't misunderstand what's being said here. This is not a confusion of identities. It's not saying that the Son is the Father. That's modalism. It's using the word Father as the psalmist uses it in Psalm 103. As a father pities his children. So the Lord pities them that fear him. He's saying he will be everlastingly the one who cares for shepherds, watches over father-like the people of God. Later on in chapter 40, I think in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses 9 through 11, Isaiah tells us that Yahweh, the mighty God, will shepherd his flock. He will gently tend his little ones. That's the point here. This mighty God has a father-like, tender, gentle compassion for his little ones. He knows the frailty of our frame. He, He knows how weak we are, how Prone we are to wander, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He knows that and he he has pledged himself in the covenant with God to be everlastingly our father in the sense that he will exhibit the father's love and care for us. Remember the occasion is in John 14 where, where Philip says, to the Saviour, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And Jesus says to Philip, we should all recite it, shouldn't we? You surely know it. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you don't know me? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the reflection of the Father. In me, the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells. 
I am the express image of the Father. I'm not the Father. And he's not the Son, but I reflect the Father in my sonship. Here we have a mighty God who will care everlastingly for God's people. And then finally, he's called Prince of Peace. That word peace means so much more than we tend to use it today. We think in terms of the ending of hostilities, but that's not what peace means. Shalom means fullness of life. It means wholeness of life. He's, he's the prince. He is the one who will bring us life and life in all its fullness. Remember Jesus' words in John 10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. That is what it means for him to be the Prince of Peace. He comes to establish peace with God between God and sinners. He, he comes to remove the enmity, but more than that, he comes to bring us into the family. That's the shalom of the gospel. If someone were to ask me, Ian, what's the gospel? What does the gospel want to do for me? It wants to make you a son, a daughter of the living God. It wants to bring you into the orbit of everlasting life and peace and hope. But that presents us with a difficulty, doesn't it? Because Jesus says, do not think, Matthew 10, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've come to bring a sword. I've come to bring division between a man and his wife, between parents and children, children and parents. How, how are we to understand this? Are you not the Prince of Peace, Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, assuredly I am. What then do you mean when you say that you've not come to bring peace but a sword to bring division? Well, if you read the context, what he's saying is using a figure of speech. He's saying, I am the Prince of Peace. But I'm also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. I want to be to you the Prince of Peace. But as we were hearing from Alistair this morning in Smithton, so many just want to say we will not have this man to rule over us. We find him a threat. They want to distance themselves. And then after distancing themselves, they want to oppose him and oppose those who identify with him. That's what Jesus means. I have come almost, if, if I can use the language, because Calvin uses it, so it must be okay, um, by accident, by accident, I've become a divider. I want to be a rescuer. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Here is God's answer to the darkness 
of every age. It's a child who was born. It's a son who was given. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? It's so counterintuitive. Is this the almighty creator God's answer to the darkness that causes such confusion and misery and mayhem in the world? Yes, it is. Because what Jesus Christ does, he goes to the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. There are no facile solutions with the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a young Christian, just started university in Glasgow, it was a year when students revolted all over Europe. Some of you might remember it. Daniel Cohn Bendit, Tari Kelly, breathing revolution. Streets of Paris, blockades, barricades. The man, the young student who took over from me in the Socialist Society, that's another story. He became the first Marxist student president in Britain. I was converted and thought that mission was more important than socialism. We gave out a tract, I remember. I remember it vividly. And the tract read on the outside, revolution can change everything except the human heart. It's a quote from Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Revolution can change everything except the human heart. Jesus Christ comes to change people from the inside out. Change will come not ultimately by parliamentary decree. Change will come when people change. And the good news is that God is able and willing to change us, to make us new creations. That's why Jesus Christ came into the world, not simply to be admired, to have carols written about him. He came into the world to be the saviour of the world, to be the light of the world, to dispel our personal darknesses and our communal darknesses. I have come that you might have life. And life in all its fullness. Darkness covers the face of our nation. The hope for Scotland, for England, for wherever, is the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And that's why we're called to tell out the gospel and to say to people can I tell you about what God has done to bring light to dispel your darkness
May God make us more passionate evangelists for the sake of his glory. Amen.